Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Creation Podcast, the show where we discuss the science that confirms scripture. I have with me today ICR's president, Dr. Randy Galuza. Thank you so much for being here, well, Dr. Thank G. Thank you very much. Uh, we always love having you on the show. Thank you for stepping away from all your work to uh, come sit down and have a conversation with me. Yep. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I know that uh, today is we're, we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic. Uh, that's kind of a joke. Uh, it's actually a pretty pretty dark topic, but it's important. It's something that we need to discuss, and that is eugenics. Uh, so for my limited knowledge of the grand scheme of, of science, I know that eugenics was kind of a big deal uh, in the last century or so. Uh, I know that it was a big deal in the West. I know that I've I've heard things about it in like World War II and around those times also. Uh, can you explain to me what eugenics is? Well, first, you're really blessed in a way to actually know something about it at this day and age when I was your age and through high school and college, nobody ever talked about eugenics. It wasn't in American history classes. It wasn't in my high school classes and nobody even discussed it. It was like a topic that had been completely buried or almost expunged mm. from U.S. history. And just recently with um, a lot of the honesty about slavery in the United States and um, our, our kind of our shameful past in relationship to that, that people have brought up our shameful past in relationship to eugenics so that you actually know what the topic is when I hadn't even heard about it really until just about a decade ago when I was on staff with ICR and started actually studying what it was and how it came about. And as you mentioned, it took off in Western civilization, particularly led, surprisingly, not by Germany, but by Great Britain and the United States. Mm. In fact, it was really the United States which was the leading proponent of eugenics at the time. And so people are probably wondering, well, what in the world is eugenics? Well, it was a major movement that started in Great Britain out of evolutionary thinking by a cousin of Charles Darwin's, whose name was Francis Galton. And it was the quest to improve humanity, as the name implies. You, meaning good, genics, meaning genes, or good genes. It was trying to get good genes into humanity by selectively breeding the best of human stock and eliminating inferior uh, people through um, abortion, through euthanasia for the older ones, and through selective sterilization of people that were deemed less fit than others. Okay. So that's really horrible, which mm -hmm. it, it makes sense that we would kind of try to want to hide that from our history, kind of uh, unfortunately that we participated in as a country and Great Britain participated in as a country. But I gather that it didn't just it didn't just come out of nowhere. It's not like all of a sudden we're like, well, this is exactly how it's going to be. So where did this idea come from? Where, where did the roots of, of the eugenics movement begin? You're right. It didn't just pop up overnight. It was, a, it was born in many ways from Darwinian thinking of Darwin's view of the world. 
and Darwin ushered in a worldview, and that worldview was called selectionism. And if you read, actually, the last two pages in Darwin's most influential work, which was on the origin of species, he lays out his worldview. In fact, he says, he says that there's a grandeur to this view in life, and the grandeur of this view of life was that through the struggle to survive, through extinction of many inferior types of creatures over very long periods of time that led to the diversity of life on earth culminating in humanity as he saw it over that time. So through the struggle to survive and death and extinction, you end up with an upward trajectory to all of life on earth and humanity, which was not a direct creation by God, obviously, but a result of a long evolutionary process. And that worldview, which he says is very grand, is called selectionism because Darwin invented the term and really the entire concept of natural selection. And so that's a very death-driven process, yes. correct? Oh, correct. Yeah. It's it's totally death-driven process. Nobody can separate death from natural selection because uh, Darwin based, integrated, actually, he integrated the whole idea of the struggle to survive from um, a British philosopher named Malthus who believed that in any generation there would be more people born than resources available for them, and therefore they had to struggle for those resources, and the weak ones would die out and would be eliminated, leaving only the best. And Darwin incorporated this idea into his concept of natural selection, and that's why it was so powerful in, in influencing the way people thought of the arrival of humanity, mm -hmm. and therefore then the betterment of humanity over that time. So it was a worldview which was, which was born by Darwinism um, and, and basically took hold in the social realm and okay. actually fueled the social realm, though to be accurate, social, social Darwinism, even though it wouldn't have been called Darwinism, but that social type of thinking of competition and elimination of the weak pre-existed Darwin's concept of natural selection. He just really gave it a lot of um, credibility, scientific credibility. All right. Well, uh, without digging too deep into eugenics itself, uh, I, th I think it would uh, benefit us and, and, and the viewers and listeners to just kind of talk about the kinds of things that may have uh, occurred during that time. And so for anyone who doesn't want to hear about this, just be warned, we're talking about eugenics. This is not going to be a happy subject, but uh, I think that it is important to talk about these things. Um, so you said that it is uh, the quest to improve humanity. And so um, at least from, from my perspective, uh, from being a creationist, I know that uh, humanity is not getting better, at least biologically. Uh, generation to generation, we have more mutations. Uh, there's sickness and death. And sure, we have a lot of medicine uh, and technology gets better. But how are they trying to improve, I guess, the genome, uh, the survivability, um, 
the the fittest of humanity. How how did they try to do that? What were they doing? Well, they're trying to in the in the really big picture uh, control the evolution of humanity. It was it was like human intervention in the evolution of humanity. In fact, the second international conference on eugenics basically defined eugenics as the self-directed control of human evolution. Okay. So they're trying to do that. Doing it instead of nature? Instead of nature okay. doing it, of course. Yeah. Instead of nature doing it, we're going to try to replicate what nature is doing. And there's, there's multiple facets to it. One, there was the view that modern medicine was a threat to human evolution. That because medicine could now intervene at, at earlier stages, it could save people and was saving people that normally would have died. Mm. And it was saving them to the point where they would actually develop and go on to their reproductive years and then reproduce. Mm. It also was viewed society as developing a tolerance for people who normally shouldn't reproduce. In this particular case, it would have been people who would have been considered to be mentally unfit that at, at other times would have been eliminated in some way and would not have been able to reproduce, but this this care, welfare, humanity, and other interventions was allowing them to not only live, but kind of like nurturing them along to where they could actually reproduce. And the fear was that they would then reproduce mentally unfit themselves. Okay. Another aspect of it is what would be called positive eugenics, where it's almost like what you would do with cattle. You take your best cows, you take your best bulls from your herd, you breed them together, and you're selecting for positive traits in which you would, which you would try to breed into it, which in a way is also kind of, even though it's called positive, it has this kind of seedy side to it where yeah. you're like trying to pick who's the best and, and encouraging them to breed. And, and in certain societies, uh, they, they didn't even take people who loved each other. They're just trying to select for the best genes. So it, it isn't fully positive. And then, of course, then there's the negative eugenics, which was the part that really raised the, the biggest outcry, and that was forced sterilizations, government-mandated sterilizations of people who were deemed unfit. And this happened in the U.S.? Oh, yes. Okay. Happened in the U.S., happened in Great Britain. We, and, of course, it happened in uh, the Scandinavian company, countries as well, in Germany. Happened all over Western society. Um, in many ways led by the United States, um, abortion, even before there was Roe v. Wade, there was abortion in this country, and, uh, and then euthanasia, of which all of these haven't really left society by any means, and in fact, are even increasing today. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I have uh, something written down here in my notes, and it said that you mentioned like medicine was kind of ruining the process of natural selection. I have here that it's like civilization in its entirety uh, is, is ruined the process of natural selection and eugenics must replace it. To me, that seems like society and civilization is what makes us human in the first place. Like that doesn't ruin anything that that is us. I mean, right. Is that not right? That's what makes us civilized. That's what makes us different than animals. Right. Is the fact that all of us were created in the image of God and we have this sense, almost this innate sense of the value of other human beings 
of course, your conscience can be overridden. Mm-hmm. It can be poisoned to where you no longer see that. But I think you're referring to a quote, and, I, and I'll just read it because sure. it is so valuable. It's from a man named Carl Pearson. Now, Carl Pearson, let me just give a little bit of background on him. Carl Pearson was a British biostatistician. <laughs> and um, in many ways, he did a lot of good things. When I was at Harvard getting my master's in public health, and I was taking courses in biostats, I used many equations by Carl Pearson. In fact, they're, they're just called Pearson equations in mm. many ways. And I was unaware of this other side of him, that he was such an advocate back at the turn of the last century for eugenics. I was always thinking it was Francis Galton, who was the cousin of Charles Darwin. But Pearson, in many ways, was a leader of this movement and influenced in the United States as well. And, and this, this was an interesting um, quote that he had, and he actually had two. I, had, I have two, one from 1920s and one from 1912. A long time so, ago. Long time ago. And I'll read the 1921 first okay. because it kind of gives an overview. By this time, he had developed his thoughts a little bit better about this. And then I'll, I'll just pick right up and read the 1912 one, which he read to a bunch of medical doctors at a medical society. Okay. And I think they'll just give us some things to discuss. Yeah. yeah. Where Pearson said, quote, in my mind and in a growing number of other minds, civilization will end unless civilization can find a method of doing for itself what natural selection and if you show, if you print this quote for the people on the screen, they'll see it's, it's capital N and capital S. Mm-hmm. Did for man during his ascent, ensuring that he shall breed only from his best. The study of how that is possible forms the subject matter of what we now term the science of eugenics. We have to replace the ruthless action of natural selection by reason conduct of civilized man. That's gross. It, like, is, it makes it you is. feel uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, it's it's like an oxymoron. It, it's one of these perversions mm-hmm. that you almost sense there's this uh, evil influence in it because it's taking what what normally would be seen as good and turning it completely on its head. The reason conduct of civilized man has to be replaced with this ruthless action of natural selection which mm-hmm. brought us there. And earlier he had said to a medical society meeting in in 1912, and it's really quite a long quote, but we have a shortened version of it. He says, nevertheless, medical science has to face the fact that the upward progress of man in the past has been largely controlled by stringent Darwinian selection. Just pause right there. What he's talking about is death, Mm -hmm. is that people had died in his view of how man got here. And that's how we got better. That's how we got better. In fact, that's the only way you get better is by one stepping on the corpse of the other and advancing that away. He adds, we shall gain nothing for racial efficiency by neglecting the central fact of human development. Now, if there be a fairly stringent selection of the weaker individuals by the mortality of infancy and childhood, What will happen, and he's asking the doctors this, what will happen if by increased medical skill and by increased state state support and private charity, we enable the weaklings to survive and to propagate their kind? Why, 
undoubtedly we shall have a weaker race. But we can show from isolated instances that in many ways medical science has led to survival of the unfit. That goes back to what you said earlier about, right. you know, medicine is a problem in, this, right. in this regard. That's right. He saw that as a problem, and he said, this quote goes on, he says to these physicians later on, now if you take natural selection as your worldview, and he's, I'm paraphrasing him here, but that's what he says to them, then you must put into practice medical doctors, you must put into practice that you believe natural selection. What he's saying then is what? They have to choose between life and death for these people. That's right. Yeah. Wow. It's really scummy. It is scummy. So people who have put their trust in medical doctors for their well-being and care can't trust them because these medical doctors are not their patients' advocates. They're the advocates for humanity. They're the advocates for human evolution. And that's what he's calling on them to be. As a medical doctor, how does that make you feel? It makes me feel um, like a, a traitor. Okay. It would make me feel like a complete traitor to my patients on that, where if anybody is going to be their advocate, if anybody is going to stand up for their patient, and that's what my job was as a medical doctor, to fight for them, to argue for them, to do everything I can to get the resources they need to get better, mm-hmm. not just apply medical skills, but to basically be in their corner yeah. with them. And that's what real medical doctors are supposed to do, is to be on their patient's side. That now I, I have a divided interest, and I am supposedly put the best interests of humanity and my worldview of natural selection into effect and, in essence, not do my best for them or, worse, do things to hasten their demise. Wow. Okay, so we know that this is really gross. Uh, eugenics is immoral, distasteful, uh, but it's not, at least to the extent that it was, it's not in practice to that extent anymore. I mean, we're not... Uh, we don't have like marriage registries or anything like that for for like choosing a fit mate, at least as far as I know. Uh, but so it's it's fallen out of practice to an extent. Would you would agree? Oh yes, but we can't really gloss over how extensive it was in this country. Right. Um, most people don't realize that the United States was the leader in this. Okay. And. It's fallen out of practice, but what I didn't realize was that in the United States, 31 states, 31 states had passed forced sterilization laws. And the leaders in the, in the United States of doing it were Virginia and Indiana. And the laws of these states were actually taken by the Nazis, the Nazi German government. And they were used as the basis for them developing their laws. And most people don't realize this. What a what That's a, really uncomfortable. I know. <laughs> we think that it, we think that it was the Nazis who who were the leaders of this, but it wasn't. And in fact, they, they took the law in Virginia mm-hmm. and they used that as the basis for developing their laws. And thirty-one states had developed forced sterilization laws. 
and over 70,000 American citizens were forcibly sterilized during that period of time against their will. So much so that there was a major Supreme Court decision um, referred to quite often called Buck versus Bell. Buck versus Bell, and it was, uh, I'll just summarize it very quickly. A woman did not want to be forcibly sterilized, and she was deemed to be mentally unfit, and her mother was deemed to be mentally unfit as well. And she fought the forced sterilization and went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes, wrote the major decision. And he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing again, but it's pretty accurate. He said, you know, we call on the best citizens of the United States to lay down their lives for, in wars. And therefore, it's not too much to ask other people to be forcibly sterilized, or he said the cutting of the fallopian tubes is a minor sacrifice in comparison to laying down your life for the betterment of society. Therefore, the order is put into effect. And the order was that she was sterilized. And as it turns out, um, she never was a mental defective at all. She was quite normal, and that went on for quite some time. And as you mentioned, the forced sterilizations began to fall out of favor but they didn't really go away mm -hmm. until 1973 when— Which is not that long ago. Yes, I know. <sighs> that's, that's what's quite shocking yeah. is it went all the way up until the 1970s. By this time, I was, I was 14 years old and was completely unaware mm -hmm. of any of this happening when three young girls, African-Americans in Alabama— were taken to a family planning clinic, and the oldest was 16 years old, and she had a forced IUD inserted, and her two sisters, they were called the Relf sisters, R-E-L-F, -E the Relf sisters, 14 years old and 12 years old, were forcibly sterilized at that age. And they were, as far as we know, the last forced sterilizations in the United States. But we can't forget this, this all goes back to this mentality of survival of the fittest. Right. That it was natural selection which brought us to, to the place we are as humans, and we are undoing the effects of selection. Right. Well, that, that brings me to, uh, I, have, I have here a note, you know, it says that, Defenders of Darwinian thought, uh, they're like, oh, well, this was just a misapplication of, of Darwinism. This wasn't like Darwin didn't intend this, but like you, you, you read those quotes. I mean, you, it looks like this is just a consequence of that natural, uh, that selectionist thinking mindset. Yes. It's a consequence of it and it is the outworking of it completely. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about it, we say there's the Darwinian eugenics connection or the evolution eugenics co connection. And in many ways, we're just soft-pedaling it mm -hmm. because so many of us still want to hold on to the selectionist worldview. We don't want to right. tie it right back to where Carl Pearson and Francis Galton tied it to, which is the struggle to survive 
and one one lineage dominating over another. And as you mentioned, it's a consequence. But selectionism also gave it a sense that it was normal. Scientific. Scientifically and natural. Mm -hmm. You know, we look in the natural realm and we see some organisms as dominant and some as submissive. And, And therefore, oh, Selection brought that dominance about, and selection brought that submissiveness about. Therefore, it should be normal in humanity as well. And we see differences in certain segments of population, particularly in the United States and Western country at that time. Minorities were in economically inferior positions to white people in Western society. Mm -hmm. And selectionism gave the idea well, that was just natural and that was just normal. That selection not only leads to fitter people and survival of the fittest, but it leads to this type of segregation. And, and it's, it's not that it's abnormal, but it's, it's actually normal. So across the board, in many ways, selectionist thinking really grips a mindset leading to these perverse outcomes. Wow. Okay, we're going to continue this conversation in just a second, but I'm going to interject. This is related, uh, but I just, uh, this is our random science question of the day. Okay, are you ready? Okay. Okay, all right. Here it is. Why, in your opinion, do you think Darwinian thought had such a, a stranglehold? Why did it grip society the way that it did and still does? What about it made it so appealing? What about it made it so uh, just like, yeah, like made everybody go, okay, yeah, this is it. This is how we're going to run the world from now on. Like what what about it made it so appealing to everyone? Well, that's a great question. In many ways, it's almost like <laughs> the perfect storm. Okay. You've you've heard of that movie. Yeah, it's like yeah. everything lines George Clooney, up. Right? Yeah, yeah, George Clooney was in it and and – and uh, he evidently wasn't the fittest uh, in, in the movie. Um, but the perfect storm is where so many things line up okay. to lead to a disaster. In the, in the military, we call it the, the Swiss cheese effect, okay. where you have to get all of the holes to line up just the right way, all these different conditions, and then disaster strikes. Mm-hmm. Eliminate any one of those, and you kind of prevent the disaster from happening. And in, in society, there was a lot of things lining up. One, higher criticism of the Bible mm-hmm. had taken hold of a lot of thinking. So people were beginning to doubt the Bible anyway. And they were questioning the historicity of, of the scriptures in areas that were not even related to science. They were questioning the, the historical accounts in Genesis and all over. So there was a questioning of the authority of the scriptures Bang! That's like one hole right there. There's this. There's this loss in the authority of scriptures. Two, the industrial revolution was beginning to take off in the 1860s and all the way through the 1890s and early 1900s. And there, there was this element of social Darwinism, even though it wasn't called at that time the social idea of Darwinism. But there was this idea where you dominate over the weaker. One industry if it can, can eliminate the competition, become a monopoly, and just become dominant altogether. And, and that was almost looked up to and respected in some ways 
as the way of the world, even before Darwin was even pushing this. So you had this, this kind of ruthlessness which was taking hold in society as well. There's like another line of the Darwinism switch. light. La- yeah. Light, yeah. which um, preceded Darwin's yeah. thinking. In fact, Darwin borrowed ideas from that and okay. incorporated them into his selectionist mindset. And, that. and the third is the rise of science and the prestige of science. And science can give things credibility, um, a credibility of knowledge which began to rival the credibility which religious figures used to have when they would speak, and they would, and people took that as the truth. Now science would speak. In other words, it's like believe the science, obey mm-hmm. the science. Have you heard that recently? Where science follow, the science, you know, follow yeah. the science. Science gives things a lot of credibility. Mm-hmm. Bing. There's another hole. So the view of the Bible, the Industrial Revolution, the rise of the authority of science, and then, and then Darwin's thinking got the stamp of science and scientific credibility. So people were just like, whoa, this is exactly what we have been waiting for to free us from the shackles of religious thinking all along. And he provides a way to explain the design of life. He provides a way to explain the diversity of life which doesn't refer to a direct creation by God. And voila, we now have an explanation for how we got here that seems to make sense and has scientific authority and seems to go with the ways of the world. And we're not responsible to a creator. And we're not responsible to a creator. And all of those things were lining up, in my opinion. Yeah, (laughs) uh, that's a very well thought out opinion. To lead to the acceptance of Darwinian thinking. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's that's great. Uh, I mean, it's not great that it happened, but it it, it kind of makes sense that it that all those pieces lined up at the exact right time, um, and then then it just took hold. Because I always kind of wondered, you know, I mean, what about him? Because you read it and it's you read uh, the Origin of Species, and it's it's you know, there's some interesting ideas, but it's not any real different than like there were a lot of other thought process processes going on at the time why did that one take hold so i think i yeah that's that's a great um just summary of why why it took off yeah it does uh well thank you so we'll get back to the topic at hand um which is related i think uh, because we're now going to talk about why why eugenics kind of took hold uh in the u.s why it uh why it held the u.s and western culture in its grip for so long um, so, uh, eugenics is immoral. We know that it's immoral. Uh, we can just see that and feel that in our conscience. We know that from the get go. Uh, but why and how was it so accepted in its time? Well, that actually made almost like a playbook for how almost any scientific idea becomes accepted today and becomes dominant because you're right. You know, the whole idea of, of forcibly sterilizing a person, that's just, that just kind of goes against our conscience. And, and as Americans, it went against this whole idea of freedom. Right. So how did you get the idea that, that this was something good, that, that this, this is something that we ought to do? Well, that goes back to the authority of science in many ways. And you just didn't have eugenics just pop onto the scene. Mm -hmm. As Pearson said, we call it the science of eugenics. And so it was built up as a major 
scientific work. And there were, there were credible, respectable, peer-reviewed journals that were established, two leading ones that were established in the United States. And they were set up by eugenicists. They were uh, peer-reviewed by other eugenicists. But once something gets published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, it takes on a level of credibility, which is very hard to argue against in, in, in a lot of other ways. Mm-hmm. So it's like Harvard publishes a peer-reviewed study on such and such, and it goes to Congress. And then people are going to listen to that, and then someone wants to criticize it. The first thing they're going to say is, well, do you have any scientifically peer-reviewed studies on your own? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, we don't have them. And part of the reason why you don't have them is because you don't have your own journals. And two, critical studies that you might want published in the journals never pass peer review because they're controlled by the eugenicists. Second, you end up with major conferences that are established, international conferences on eugenics. And people get invited to be keynote speakers. And, And then they take on an air of authority. And then those people get established as department heads or chairman of major universities. And that gives them even more authority. So now you have Dr. So-and-so, who is the chair of the department of such-and-such at this major leading university, says, and that makes it hard to argue with as well in all of those areas. Mm-hmm. So you have, the, you have the, basically the stamp of approval of science by establishing the major leaders in control of the major universities, running the major peer-reviewed publications, and all dissenting opinion is effectively squashed. Well, to to me that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, to me that just sounds like, hey, we want to get this uh, idea promoted. We're going to start a club, and uh, we're going to invite all of our friends who also believe this idea um, and then we're going to make a big deal about it. We're going to make some magazines. We're going to make some, uh, we're going to have some big conferences and only our friends and people who believe like us can join this club. And if you're not a part of this club, you're out. Like you have no credibility whatsoever. I mean, that's what it sounds. It sounds like they're manipulating everything. Exactly. Okay. That's, that became, as I said, like a playbook. Okay. Once and and what's interesting is nobody even thinks about the fact that eugenics had all of this scientific prestige behind it. It fell out of favor primarily because it had a lot of racial overtones to it, mm-hmm. and it was gone. But if you go back in time, it had as much scientific the scientific stamp of approval behind it as evolutionary thinking does today, who control the major journals, who control the major research institutes, who who influence Congress, who help influence laws and states and other things. It's the, the universities. Same. And universities. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the climate change debate is, is run the same way. And I'm not even taking a, a stance on global warming one way or the other. I'm just saying the debate is controlled in the exact same way. And it goes back to, even at the time, if you go back then, smoking. Mm-hmm. Nine mm-hmm. out of 10 doctors. <laughs> Nine out of 10 doctors, this is that, it does this, even though a lot of people knew it was smoking. And then uh, there was a major industry 
which mined asbestos. Mm. And, and people are beginning to wonder, is there a connection between asbestos exposure and lung disease? And all the major researchers came out on the side of the asbestos mining companies. Because that's where the money was? That's where the money was. And you had the peer-reviewed studies. You had everything else, which squashed for a long time dissenting views that there may be a linkage between asbestos exposure and lung disease. So I could point to multiple places where the science was totally wrong and where people are telling us today to trust the science or follow the science are completely ignorant of, in many ways, the abysmal track record of consensus science in trying to persuade people's thinking. And um, there's just, and there's another area. There was a failure on the part of the church. Mm -hmm. People in the church um, knew forced sterilization was wrong. And there was a major silence in the part of the Protestant church, particularly where pastors and other leaders basically caved in to the scientists and either endorsed what they were saying from their pulpits or were completely silent about it. So a major segment of the moral voice in society was completely blunted. It was absent. In fact, the, from the religious side, the moral voice, voice came against eugenics from the Roman Catholic Church, mm -hmm. which became the major voice pushing back against it. Well, good. Good. Uh, <laughs> That's a good. Well, it's good that someone was speaking out against it. It's not good that the Protestants did not. Uh, I, to me, that sounds very similar to the situation that we're facing today with churches and evolution of like, we don't want to talk about it or like, eh, it's, it's, it's an iffy issue. We'll just be quiet because we don't want to offend anybody. Right. Um, and you know, the scientists tell us and who wants to look scientifically ignorant Right. So it's there's so many parallels to the situation the church is facing today with um, creation evolution, and the church will be facing, and it's coming down on us like a freight train with the LGBTQ mm -hmm. plus community as well, because they are going to get the stamp of approval from science. Mm -hmm. They are looking for the studies. They're looking for studies that people are, quote, born this way, act this way, all these other kind of things. They want the stamp of approval of science as well. Because you can't argue with science. That's right. Well, or at least that's that's the general mindset. So, so in essence, a small but vocal minority controls the peer, uh, the peer review procedures. Uh, they muffle any sort of criticism, and then they... They make their own experts, the experts talk, uh, and then they just monopolize. I guess it comes to authority, the authority of science. That's right. Okay. Um, that's kind of scary. It is. Yeah. Uh, and and makes me really uncomfortable. But um, I want to kind of tail end this with, uh, so you said that eugenics um, fell out of favor due to uh, racial overtones. Um, can, can you give us a little bit of, of just a, a small snippet about that and why that's important. Well, yes, because a lot of the people who were um, considered to be unfit were racial minorities, and uh, they suffered, and this is a good use of the word, disproportionate 
uh, the effects of eugenics policies in the United States, not just minorities, but they were the major thrust of many of these forced sterilizations and other things. And it, for, for at least one good reason, and that was the fact that it was very racist in its applications, it started to fall away, and then the whole idea of forcing someone to be sterilized became more and more morally repugnant. Mm -hmm. And then me physicians and medical doctors are seeing that this is just a misapplication of what they should be doing. It went away. But it, in a way, it's a shame that that is the only reason why it fell out of favor, when we should actually be seeing that there was no scientific justification for it at all. Mm -hmm. And number two, we're not, we're not pinpointing the real problem, which was Darwin's selectionist worldview, which led to survival of the fittest. Right. Why is that a problem? I guess I, I shouldn't be asking you the question. <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to be asking yeah. me. <laughs> why? Why? No, that is a problem. Like it, we're, it's just a symptom. It's a symptom of a greater issue. It is, and it doesn't go away. Because in medicine, if you don't make the correct diagnosis of the problem, then you won't treat it correctly. Right. So if you're diagnosing the problem as racism and you're not diagnosing the problem as Darwin's selectionism, then you're not treating the right thing. Right. And then selectionism doesn't really leave society. It hasn't evaporated from the church at all, and it just manifests itself in other ways through sociobiology or through evolutionary psychology, which ends up with other manifestations where eugenics movement just morphed into the abortion. Yeah, I was about no, to say that. abortion is still alive and well. It, it, it's it's a huge issue. That's right. Um, and even though we've gotten rid of of some of the horrible aspects of the eugenics movement, I mean, ab abortion is is horrible. It it is you know, and and it's still here. It's well, still here with us today. Exactly. And it's it's still practiced in many ways, like eugenics. And and this is another thing which people really need to consider. This is another thing that they need to think about. You end up with like coerced abortions. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to, people want to say, well, these are voluntary abortions. Well, they're not necessarily always voluntary. Now, let me explain what I mean by coerced. So a, a, a couple goes in and they want genetic testing on their pre-born child. And let's say the genetic testing comes back and it indicates there's going to be some kind of problem a deformity, or whatever it is. You, as a couple, have to rely on unbiased counsel mm -hmm. from somebody. But if you, and, and if you had unbiased counsel, then you could make an informed decision, what's called informed consent. But let's say you came into me and I was a biased physician, and I give you biased counsel because I have... Um, bigoted ideas against, some, let's say, someone with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I don't value what they bring to society. All I see is, is the cost to society of a person with Down syndrome on that because I have this kind of warped view of humanity, warped view of the value of people and all of this. And I give you biased counsel. 
and I and I and I give you skewed counsel about all the costs and, and to society and the cost to you as a couple, cost to you as a family. You can twist it any way you I want. I can twist it any way I want. You're the I expert want. in that situation, exactly. And how this person will suffer, and therefore, in many ways, it would be better off if they were never born. Right. I actually a uh, bit of a. a personal touch for those those of you listening and viewing you may get a little more story about trey than you want that was the story of uh my mom was uh they recommended her to abort me in in the early 90s uh they said that i had lots of issues and i was born i was a little premature i don't have any major issues that i know of no. uh, but she was like absolutely not this child's made in the image of god you know and it, if he's got issues he's got issues but you know, but even in, in the nineties, they, they were right. They recommended that. So. That's right. Exactly. And that is the creep of selectionist thinking, which ends up devaluing all the way going back, all the way to eugenics, human beings. Mm. We're human beings. We're, we're made in the image of God. Mm -hmm. There's, uh, we're not animals. It's, they're treating us like animals, you know, uh, almost. And, and, and it just, Makes me. I, I think about some of just some of the language that's used in the eugenics movement, and it's just very uncomfortable. Um, but uh, I'm glad that we talked about it. Thank you for talking about it with me. Uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts before we uh, before we draw this to a close? Well, sure. Yeah. Um, one, uh, just just as a follow up for couples, um, you need to. Um, find good counselors. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you'll get good doctors and there's value of prenatal testing and there's value of prenatal care and all those things, but you need to find doctors you can trust too. You need to rely on the Bible yes. and what the Bible tells you about that child that the Lord allowed you to conceive and go forward on that. Um, if you don't get, if you don't rely on the Bible, you will not have real informed consent. Yeah. And you rely on this biased information. And then three, even as creationists, we need to watch the creep of selectionist thinking even into our mindset. So often I will hear someone say like, well, natural selection is just a conservative process. It's not a constructive process. Mm -hmm. And what they, and I said, well, we'll explain what you mean by that. Well, they'll say, well, natural selection is, is basically a God-ordained process to help people live in a fallen world where n nature el eliminates the weak and eliminates those defective genes from the population. Uh, and therefore, it really preserves and conserves the population, the, the, the genetic health of the population as a whole for the benefit of everybody else. Right. And uh, we've even said those those kinds of, kinds of things in the past. And that just shows how easily your thinking can be swayed by selectionist thinking yeah. where, where we in, end up, in essence, say, God ordained a process to weed out the unfit for the benefit of the others. And we don't even realize what we're saying, but we're saying God is a eugenicist. Yeah, that's... My God is not a eugenicist, you know? That's right. <laughs> right. So, uh, wow. So that's, uh, we need to be careful and yeah. go back to the Bible and our thinking and be suspicious when the world tries to bring to our mind and put into our mind their worldly thinking. Well, 
Thank you so much. I will actually, we'll link in this video. You have three episodes of our other podcast, creation.live, where you sit in with some other ICR scientists and you talk about some of the issues uh, with Darwinian selection and and why that's a big deal. So we'll link to those uh, so that others can watch and listen to those. I, I feel like that's a, a very good um, full understanding of why that's a problem. So, uh, but thank you so much for being no. here, Dr. G. Yeah. And thank you to all of our listeners and viewers. Uh, we really appreciate you tuning in for this and listening to this. Uh, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, we know that this can be a little bit of an uncomfortable topic, but it's important to talk about. Uh, and just as a reminder, this is not just a misapplication of Darwinian selectionism. This is a consequence. This is where Darwinian selectionism leads you uh, just as an idea, as a worldview. Uh, it's very dangerous. So. Uh, we just encourage you to share that with your friends and we encourage you to examine your own thought processes to see if selectionism has crept in there in any way. Uh, so for now, we'll see you next time on the Creation Podcast. <laughs>